So for all the listeners, as usual, it's Darren from HackerJob. This week, I'm joined by Steve Gargan, board member, keynote speaker, talent hacker and advisor. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Darren. Thanks for having me today. No, thank you very much for attending. So uh, I guess, as always, it's not everyone that listens to the podcast is going to be aware of your background. So could you give us a, a little bit of a sweeping tour of your, of your history? Sure, sure, Darren. Happy to do that. As my kids like to say, your favorite topic, you, Dad. I've been in the world of human resources for about 30 years. I accidentally fell into the world of recruiting about one year out of university. And over the course of my working life, I've had a chance to work in five different industries, fashion industry, insurance industry, semiconductor industry, networking industry, uh, video game industry, and in varying you know, uh, degrees, progressed my HR career over those years. And then my last regular job, I was the head of HR for uh, LinkedIn, the first head of HR actually, for the periods of the biggest growth. Over the course of my career, I have lived and worked in Singapore for two years, uh, Western Canada and Vancouver, British Columbia for four years. And today I live in Silicon Valley. And so for the last eight years, I've been growing my own firm, which really focuses on helping leaders and organizations build what I call compelling talent strategies. And that's where I like to use the word talent hacker because what I've found, unfortunately, over my career is that most people know more about what they don't want from human resources than what they do want. And many uh, leaders that I run into are fearful and suspicious of human resource people. And so what I try to do is help uh, build trust uh, through my credibility and through my judgment and help them build great talent solutions. And I have a great privilege of having clients like the BBC, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Google, Twitter, Facebook. I've done some work with LinkedIn since I left LinkedIn. Um, and it's really great to have a great diversity of clients and industries for me to get a really good bird's eye view on the future of work. And that, that leads me to the last point I'll make here, Darren, in terms of what I'm working on is I submitted on Friday, literally just a few days ago, my manuscript of my first book on the future of work. So I'm very excited and hope that comes out by the end of the uh, by the end of this year, early next year, depending upon any sort of production challenges that COVID may present in the world of publishing. Yeah, you don't really know what's going to happen in the world at the moment, do you? You, you can make predictions and say, look, this is what I'm aiming for by the end of the year, and then, uh, and then COVID throws it all off. So true. That is so true. So I guess, uh, first question from, from me, I, I think your, your background's fascinating because obviously you've worked at corporations like Cisco, EA in LinkedIn earlier in your career, I guess going back a couple of years, but then recently moved into what you were talking about, the, the tech hacking stuff, the advising and the mentoring roles. What compelled you to make that transition? Well, you know, I'm, I, I can't say, Darren, that I had a master plan. Uh, when I left LinkedIn in two, 2013, I was really tired. Uh, I'd worked my tail off for about 25 years and I just needed to take a breath. And so when I was taking that breath, I had a chance to reconnect with hundreds of colleagues and coworkers and friends that I'd met through the years, uh, through my professional life, just checking, rechecking in and finding out what people are working on. And I discovered through hundreds of these conversations, probably over the course of six months, that uh, there was an interest in some of my experience in helping build culture in an organization or helping organizations that are growing really fast and hyper growth scenarios or helping people scale recruiting 
in an impossibly competitive marketplace. Trying to hire technical talent in Silicon Valley is as hard as it gets. Um, and when you have sexy giants that are outbidding you, doubling, tripling salaries, doing million-dollar retention bonuses, it really forces you to have to innovate. And so um, that's a space where I had a big sandbox to play in at LinkedIn. And I really uh, found over the course of a few months of meeting with friends that, you know what, this helping leaders and helping companies really build cutting edge, leading edge, very innovative talent strategy is something that I had a, a deep interest in. And, you know, when I look back there and around a career and, and how we build careers today, and, and that's a whole nother topic we could talk about is because I think what a career means today is far different than what it just meant 15 years ago. But I look at the process of one company to another or one industry to another as a process of refining our own personal funnel mm -hmm. of where we, uh, where we enjoy spending our time, what kind of work we like doing, who we like doing it with, what kind of environment suit us. And, and so I feel like right now I've sort of, I've had the, the great uh, ability to be able to sort of say, this is what I really like to do. I like to, talk strategy. I like to really coach. I like to help build, you know, organizations so that they can realize their best destiny. And I like to do that in very short bursts. I don't like working on long projects. I like to work in very short um, sort of inspirational moments, if you will. And then if people want a longer change uh, strategy, then I'll, I have so many partner colleagues and firms that I work with to help them you know, realize something longer if, if it takes longer. But it really was just experimentation and testing out if there was an interest in the marketplace for, for what I'm doing. And then some of the clients that really have, um, we have a good connection in terms of how we see the world. Um, I will move on to an official advisory board role or in some cases, a board of directors role. And that's, you know, from my experience working in HR 30 years, I have not run into many people with an HR pedigree that find themselves in the boardroom. And so I'm pretty proud of the fact that I've been able to make that transition and I'm helping a lot of other, I'm mentoring lots of other CHROs and heads of heads of HR around the world, help them make that transition as well if they're interested. It's not very often you see someone from a HR background move into that board role, but in reality, HR is yeah. hopefully on, on the pulse for, for what's going on in the, in the business. So you really need them there in the boardroom to know what's going on. And I think what's really interesting about your background is that if you look at the three companies I mentioned, Cisco, EA, and LinkedIn, all at very different stages of, of their growth. Obviously Cisco, absolute giant. EA, the king of the, the gaming industry. If, if anyone doesn't know about EA, think about games like FIFA, think about games like Madden and those sports games, but also think about stuff like Medal of Honor and, and Battlefield. So some really big titles in that space. And then LinkedIn, you were there for that hyper growth moment. So I suspect that actually, despite there being some similarities and them all being giants in their own field, they're all very different businesses. So they're probably all very different challenges when you were there. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the beauty of human resources. I do a lot of career coaching uh, for free for friends and colleagues. And one of the things if I'm talking to new grads is I'll say, you know, they'll say, they'll ask me, why are you really interested in human resources? It has a real, you know, brand problem and it's not always the highest respected function. I say, well, let's step back for a second because I can work in any country, in any industry in the world. And if there's a recession in one or, or there's challenge in one industry, it doesn't affect me because I can go to many different places. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, Cisco was networking, EA video games and LinkedIn was social networking, completely different um, industries. And, and also, yes, all of those were in different 
periods of their you know corporate evolution. When I was at Cisco, it was we were for about a week when I was there, the most valuable company in the world. Um, and then the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. And, you know, I saw the stock go from 82 to, to $9. Uh, I was there to have to lay off 8,000 people. And it was brutal. Uh, Electronic Arts, I was also there for sort of the downside of some good years. The stock never moved the whole time I was there. We laid off more people than we hired during that period. We'd missed the PlayStation. Oh, no, sorry. We'd missed the Nintendo, and we'd missed online gaming. And so we were a follower. Today, EA's a leader. But when I was there for a couple of years, it was really struggling, and that was really hard. Uh, and LinkedIn was completely different than anything I'd ever done in my life. I'd never been to a startup. I'd never been to a pre-IPO company. And honestly, Darren, I thought going in there, how hard can this be? I've seen every mistake in the book. I've seen all kinds of problems in big companies. Now I'm going to get a chance to build an HR function and a culture from scratch. This is going to be great. I have so many experiences from, from what I've seen early in my career. And I couldn't have been more wrong because there's a huge difference between uh, fine-tuning and refining something, which you mostly do in a big company. You're sort of given something that's been built before you got there and you have to tune it to fit the future strategy of the company. At LinkedIn, nothing had been built, nothing. We had no process. We had no guidelines on, you know, how many levels are we gonna have? What's our performance management philosophy? What's our compensation philosophy? What's the promotion strategy? Nothing. So we had to build it from scratch and that was so hard and so painful. Um, but, you know, very, very fulfilling at the same time. And I feel very proud that I still think to this day that the LinkedIn culture is one of the best cultures in tech companies today. And you talk to people that leave and they just, they grieve it. It's like leaving something really special. So, but that took a lot of hard work. That was not easy. People on the outside see these companies that are doing really well and they may think it was a walk in the park. It wasn't. It was incredibly long hours. It was many, many weekends. And it was, it was, it had its great moments of joy, but great moments of stress as well when you're building something that no one's ever built before, you know? Yeah. And I, I think I agree with that point. I think that culture is something that most companies feel they, they're doing well. And in reality, very few companies do do culture well. You, you look at, there's been a few examples during this period, like, a, like an Airbnb and like a delivery. They've actually done very well on their, their culture because They've, they've gone through this transition. They've had to make some difficult choices, but in reality, people are grieving as they're leaving because of the culture that's shown in that business. Whereas I think that LinkedIn, Liveroo, yeah. Airbnb are some of the rare examples where people would grieve if they left outside of grieving the people that you used to work with. In those yeah. things, you grieve the culture you worked with. That's right. And, and this, this gets to a big point that I'm calling out in my book, sort of uh, laying some nuggets for it in our conversation here, that... The way that Airbnb handled their staff reduction compared to some other companies was such a model because what they did was they did it so professionally and with such high integrity that even the people that were leaving felt more loyal. <laughs> and that is the power of a good culture. And I had a really interesting opportunity before Airbnb hired their first head of human resources, Belinda Johnson, uh, who's now the COO. At the time, she was the general counsel was conducting the search for their first head of HR. And she asked to meet with me just to get my point of view. And she said, Steve, we're really worried about hiring our first head of HR. We feel that this is such a precious and important role and we don't wanna screw it up. You know, what advice do you have? And I really, it made, um, it really warmed my heart how much care and thought 
and sensitivity and respect that they had for getting that role right. Um, and, and I asked them, I said, so what are the sensibilities that are most important to you in this role? And, and why are you worried about it? You know, why are you nervous? And in her response, unfortunately, is a response that I hear so often when I'm helping companies fire their first head of human resources. They say something like this, Darren. They say, we want an HR person who's not an HR person. And so my first reaction to that is, well, please tell me, what is an HR person? Because when you ask a question like that, you're suggesting to me you've seen more about what you don't like in HR than you've seen good models of HR. And that's a shame. So, um, but what she, what she did say was, well, the most important thing to us is culture. And that got into a really great philosophical discussion we had around, well, who actually owns the culture? Do you think this hire is going to own the culture? Do you think the leadership team owns the culture? Do you think the employees own the culture? Like, who owns it? And if you want an HR person with really good HR uh, culture sensibilities, how do you see that working? And that just led to a really interesting conversation. They hadn't thought about that question in that dimension because a lot of companies, let's take DNI, diversity and inclusion right now. It's one of the hottest topics in Silicon Valley, uh, other obviously than, than COVID and trying to you know survive in your business. But many companies need jerk the DNI by saying, oh, we need to hire someone who's in charge of diversity and inclusion. And I think that's a horrible strategy because now you defer ownership of that off of the leaders and onto somebody else. When the only way you're going to move a big subject like culture or like diversity inclusion, which is a huge part of culture, is by having shared ownership. And if you can hire someone to help build that shared ownership, great. But if you're going to hire them to take on the ownership, I think you're destined for trouble. Um, and so it's just that, that, I mean, this is, this gets to a larger topic around how the human resource function is such a fascinating function, um, especially around how, you know, today, and, and I love the function because there's no greater art than the art of coordinating people to achieve something great, but look what COVID's presented for all of us. Some new challenges that we've never dealt with before that are very complex, you know, very, very complex. Yeah, agreed. And we spoke before the, the, the pod and discussed whether the, the C word should be something we discussed and both decided, look, you can't avoid it. You can't skate around it. So obviously it's a terrible time for, yeah. for people on this side of the Atlantic and your side of the Atlantic. But what advice, I guess, would you yeah. have for people who are out of work and or potentially looking to change career at this time? Yeah. So cu- a couple of uh, bits of advice. The first is, this is a, you know, we don't know how long this COVID reality is going to be in front of us. That's really, really frustrating and it's scary. We've never had anything like this before. But here are some things that we can learn. Number one, we have on a scale we've never seen on earth before, a global leadership test that you find out more about a leader when they face stress than at any other time. You find out more about companies, how they handle stress. Is a company going to try to reap profits because of a COVID reality, or are they going to try to give more to the community and repurpose a factory to build ventilators, for example? Or are, are leaders disappearing and having some nameless person lay off the staff that they have to let go, or are they stepping up and owning it, as was the case in the Airbnb example that we talked yep. about earlier? So we are getting, whilst we have you know, a massive reduction in active recruiting right now, we are being able to use this time to sort of see when things do get closer to, you know, where they were before in terms of job opportunities. Now we have a better sense of who's deserving of our skills and our time and our abilities. So that, that I think that's a good thing. The other thing is, you know, see this as a marathon, not a sprint. 
And, the, you know, a lot of what job seekers, I think, don't understand having recruited for years and years is sometimes up to 50% of the jobs open in a company never get posted. So if you're sitting and waiting and refreshing your job board, whether it's Indeed or LinkedIn or whatever you're choosing, that's a waste of time compared to setting up meetings, informational interviews, you know, piping into your network and being really active and getting out there because that is the number one source of how companies hire is through referrals and through their internal networks. And so you need to proportionally invest your time if you are out of work in looking at those. But I also think this is, a, this gets to another topic that I bring up in my book, Darren, which is I think that the future of work is one where professionals are always looking for a new opportunity because we, we're entering this really interesting realm of career paths where there are no promises anymore. And if anyone promises you a long career in their company, you're not going to believe it. So why should companies expect people to promise they're going to stay a long time when they can't promise that some new unicorn disruptor is going to affect their business model and they're going to have to reduce staff? So what I think organizations and what um, organizations should offer is instead of long-term job security is long-term career security. We're going to make you better. We can't promise things won't change in our company, but while you're here, we'll give you new assignments, new challenges, new opportunities to grow. And so whatever happens, you'll be better for tomorrow. And similarly, I think all of us, all professionals need to always be looking and always have their head up. And that's not disloyal. That's actually doing your family a service. But just keep your head up and see what's going on and be a student of the industry, be a student of the business. And if things are looking shaky, try to understand, but always be building your network, not just in the company, on the outside. And this is, this is you know, feeling like a really grim job opportunity reality. And definitely it is on some dimensions, but it's also a time, I think, when people can be more likely to pivot because everyone's having to do new things and learn different skills. It's like the whole world's going through a digital transformation at home. Um, and, you know, one of the funny things is I say we're, we're seeing home decor at a scale never seen before from our coworkers, uh, which is, which is in some cases scary and amusing, um, but also, you know, revealing of different people's tastes, which is, which is getting us a chance to get to know each other maybe in a more personal way, even though it feels impersonal because we're not in person, but we're getting a window into the world of, you know, kids crying in the background or a CEO is fighting with their spouse for room on a kitchen table to have a, you know, a staff meeting, uh, a virtual staff meeting. Or in, in my case, I have to negotiate with my kids for Wi-Fi bandwidth if I'm delivering a webinar and say, hey, no gaming or do you have any big, are you giving a webinar to your classmates and we have to negotiate this? And I've never had to do that before. But I think, I think that, that gets to the last point I'll make on this, which is, for those of us who are feeling down right now or, or out of work is what COVID did was gave all of us a sort of like the requirement to assess where we're at. Am I in a vulnerable job? Am I in a vulnerable industry? I woke up terrified that this book I'd spent the last year and a half of my life writing might not have any value in a COVID world. And thankfully I woke up a week later and said, no, no, I think it's even more valuable. And I, and I sped up the, the completion of it, but you know, this notion of that we all are learning to be more agile, that's another good thing. If you talk to any CEO around the world, what's the number one skill you need for the future in your workforce? Greater adaptability, greater agility. And the good news is we're all 
building those skills in almost every dimension of our life, right? I wholeheartedly agree with the, the point on companies shouldn't be necessarily committing to There is no way that I ever work for a company for 50 years because the market's completely changed. But um, when I'm speaking to companies, right. I'm always interested in what are you giving to these people so that when they leave, they feel like they had the best experience that they could have had with you so that they are then speaking to their friends, their family, their colleagues, uh, or former colleagues or future colleagues and saying, look, when I worked at LinkedIn, for example, I had the best time. So, because that is the way that you, you get that network and open up that network. I think that the, the recruitment team and the HR team and the employee branding team can only do so much. A lot of time it's going to come down to word of mouth of, of people that you, you speak to and will recommend to work at that company. So I think there's nothing worse. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So true, Darren. And it, and it, and it comes down to reimagining your relationships. Okay. So one way I was with the NTT data in, in uh, Portugal last year, and I met this guy from consulting world and we were talking, we're having this very conversation. And he says, you know, I come from consulting and he said, you know what we focus on in consulting? We don't focus on, on retaining the uh, employee. We focus on retaining the relationship. And so when someone leaves you, you have a choice. I call it the, you can take the Tony Soprano school of HR and say, you quit, you're dead to me. Or you can say, you can still, you'd still be a great referral engine. Maybe you'd be a partner. Maybe you'd be a boomerang employee, come back in the future. I think recruiters need to start investing time, not just, you know, trying to build a funnel of external people who've never worked there. But I think organizations need to start thinking about an alumni strategy, right? And not just for re-recruiting them, to, to work there, but for recruiting them to come and help give advice on a new product design, come and give us a talk on, you know, the new technology advances that you're seeing in, in the new places that you're going to. And so it, we, we've done ourselves such a disservice by only framing the value of an employee while they're working for us. And so in this era of, and, and we haven't talked about this yet, Darren, but I'm, I'm sure you see it uh, just like we see it here in, in the States, the rate of turnover. You wouldn't do that. Not because you're a millennial, not because you're disloyal, not because you have a short attention span, you're chasing a promotion. It's because you can see opportunity more than any time in history. You can see where you can go. You can see what a company's culture is like. You can see what jobs are open. You can see whether you would like a leadership style. And I, I talk to all these CEOs who are so frustrated and they, they need your blaming the millennials for this high turnover reality. And I challenge them. I said, well, first off, they're your children that you raised. So you have to own, own that. The second thing is, you can't tell me 50 years ago, if you had the visibility of choice that, that the workforce has today, that you'd still be in the same company 50 years later. It's just, I'm not going to believe it. And so, you know, this is the, the challenge, I think, that we, that we face right now. And COVID has only accelerated this five or 10 years, is that we have a model of jobs and work that doesn't fit. You know, come here and commit for a long time. Oh, we're going to promise you a job for a long time. Why are we having that fake conversation? Let's change the conversation and say, I can't control how long you'll be here. We know you're going to leave one day. Where do you want to be when you leave so I can help get you there? Like, if you really care about your employee, then you need to focus on their career, not just the time they're working for you. And that, I think, will engender a longer relationship, even if they leave, of value creation for you and your organization. And that's what, you know, I'm trying to solve with my book here, Darren, is we need a new contract of work. No one's articulated in a way that feels safe and fair for both parties. We're still stuck in this, you know, oh, I have to feel guilty if I'm leaving. Even if you're not investing in me, even if my job shrunk, 
why do I feel bad if I go? Because you didn't, you're not making me safe for my career in the future. You're just taking advantage of me, you know? And so again, I think we need, we need a new model. And that's what I'm hoping my new book can help do is like, let's change the conversation here because we're, we're having a dishonest dialogue of an expectation of work that doesn't fit the current reality, you know? I think HR is adapting at a phenomenal rate at the moment. I think people management is becoming something that we uh, we didn't read. People management is a new new area of the world. It's like customer success has been a new area of sales. People management is like a new area of, of HR and recruitment. So with the the move that we're seeing in the market to a more flexible way of working becoming the norm, and that kind of nine to six culture dying out. How do you think that HR roles will adapt in the, in the next few years? I think this is really, this is incredibly challenging time for human resources, incredibly challenging um, because of the biggest, the biggest, you know, differentiator companies that are bricks and mortar usually have is our culture. This is how we do things here. And the challenge is how we do things here for everyone has changed. Like how do you explain the culture when everyone's in their home? There is no, you know, foosball table, there is no beer Friday gathering, there is no, you know, all hands meeting where we're all together in a room, face to face, seeing each other in the same way that we were. What, you know, how we're going to build culture and leverage the unique value of our entity as compared to another entity is going to be a phenomenally complex undertaking for HR and for all leadership teams. You know, how are we going to really build our defining differentiator competitive value as an organization, you know, because everyone's zooming, everyone's doing, you know, work from home. How are we going to do it differently? You know, and what does that, what does that mean? Um, and so I, I think that's, that, that's a huge challenge, like at a very, very high level, that's going to have ramifications. And I hope people are starting to have that discussion. You know, I do think COVID has forced the resistors for work from home uh, to acknowledge, well, we don't have a choice now. You're, you, you, know, you can't uh, you know, come to the conclusion that someone's only getting work done if you see it getting done. You, know, like you, have to, you have to accept this new reality. And I've seen a lot of leaders that I was not sure could make the, make the pivot, making that pivot really well. So, so what, that, what that could lead to is greater uh, access to pools of talent, more diverse pools of talent in different geographies around the world. If we have that model, and if we can learn how to do that, we now, for example, in Silicon Valley, where the competition for technical talent is ridiculous and the cost of living is equally ridiculous, well, now we're seeing some of the companies say, you can work where I live wherever you want, you know? And that leads to another really interesting thing where HR recruiting overlap, which is what I think we're gonna start to see evolve here is a new compensation band. So let's say, I'm an engineer working for Facebook and I'm in San Francisco and that's arguably one of the highest rent, you know, maybe, uh, you know, London, New York, maybe the three highest rent cities in the world. Well, now that I can go work in the middle of nowhere, living with mom and dad or living with some friends, pay almost no rent. What we're starting to see companies saying is, okay, well, we based your compensation on you having to afford to live in an impossibly expensive geography. We need to revisit that now. <laughs> And so we're going to see, I think, evolve a new global working remote salary band, which is going to be interesting, you know, and, and we're going to see, you know, benefits shift from foosball tables to we're going to give you a rock star Wi-Fi router at home. 
you know, so your kids can game and you can still do Zoom meetings. We're going to see a shift in terms of, you know, how we how we have to pay attention in human resources to we don't know how to optimize productivity for someone in the home. But we do know if the kids are home too, going to school, nine to five doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work because you got to make lunch. I literally, Darren, five minutes ago, my son texts me, can you make me breakfast right now or not? And I had to say, no, I'll be off in about 45 minutes. <laughs> I can make you breakfast. I never had that text six months ago. You know what I'm saying? And as a dad, I love cooking for my kids. I love that they're home, you know, but I, and I've worked from home for, for about 10 years, but I've not worked from home with my kids here, you know? And so we're all, I think there's, there's more upside than downside, but I'm a small, I'm a micro issue compared to big organizations. They have deliverables. They've got timelines. Every team member's personal circumstances are more relevant in terms of how they contribute because someone doesn't have kids and they can work whatever hours. Someone who does have kids has different time zones. Someone who has kids in a different time zone, in a different geography, you know, they are having to adjust, you know, and companies are going to have to adapt. And I'm seeing some really wonderful moves by people, but I'm also very fearful of burnout here, you know, because, you know, we, we have not learned the art of turning off at a certain point. We've learned the art of feeling guilty and feeling behind but we've not learned art and HR is going to have to pay careful attention to that. And how do you manage burnout when you can't see people? You know, this is going to be really challenging, right? So just huge, huge challenges. I think I'm excited for what HR can do, but I mean, I, these are just the, the ones that come to mind right away. And those are big, big challenges. I speak to a guy who's been on the podcast before, a guy called JD at GitLab. Um, about bandings all the time so I don't think you can I was chatting to him about a role that they're potentially opening uh, for for the EMEA and I said look I've got a couple of people that might be interested in this but they live in Bristol are we looking at the same salary bandings as we are in London because they are very different microcosms of, uh, of economies so I, I'm really interested about right. what companies do around this because it's something that they need to take into consideration because I agree that there might be someone that's based in San Francisco at the moment simply for the need that that's where Google need them that and actually in reality are from Arizona all their friends live in Arizona they would love to live in Arizona but they can't do because yeah. Google never allowed it so suddenly if you're gonna say to them look we'll pay you ten thousand dollars a year less I'm throwing numbers out here but ten thousand dollars a year less but you can live where you grew up you can live where you actually would love to live you're going to open up that pool so much. So I, I love that as an idea. And I also, I, I, I think it's funny you say about the, about your son asking about breakfast. I was at home over the weekend visiting my mum and uh, my niece, who's two years old, lives with her. And I drove back to, uh, I drove back to London at 5, 5am on Monday morning, simply because I had lots of calls on, on Monday. And I knew that Vienna, who's my niece, would not have allowed me to do this call. So I think that, where we need to explore <laughs> is we need yeah. to explore to the point that we are comfortable with there being children around. And look, you don't want children running in the room all the time, but I shouldn't have to fear that uh, I'm speaking to this important client and they won't understand that I've got a two-year-old there. Um, so that's where I'd love to see us go right. industry. So I don't think that remote working works until you get to the point where you are comfortable that, look, 
something might go wrong. Like you might have someone knock at your door or you might have your, your wife appear with some shopping and you need to help her put it away. Or you've got a two year old that is screaming and you need to spend right. seconds putting them to, putting them to, re- to rest. So that's where I think yeah. the market really needs to get to in order for remote working to work. Yeah. And you know what? We have not uh, put employees in many companies. We have not put employees in the place of having to speak up for themselves and feel comfortable and safe doing that. That, hey, I've got a dog. It freaks out when the doorbell rings, when there's a delivery. So you're going to hear it, but I'm fine, you know, kind of thing. And, and employees, you know, and this is where it gets to culture being really important here to facilitate the comfort with people having to ask and seek, you know, different working hour accommodations, just given the fact that we can't be in the office. And that's not normally, we don't have to have these conversations because there's your cube, there's your office, these are the hours that we're here, but it's, it's all set and, and everything is sort of a controlled environment. We have the most uncontrolled work environment ever. I, I was joking, I uh, had to record a talk to uh, several thousand human resource professionals in the Midwest and they have a big conference in a few days and they wanted me to record it in advance. And I, I thought just out of humor, I would say you know, one of the big challenges in human resource here in the States is a lot of people prior to COVID wanted an onsite childcare center for their you know, company. Like, Hey, I want to have onsite childcare. And I said, I'm sure a lot of you are relieved that those requests for the onsite childcare have gone away but they've probably been replaced by requests for elder care on site <laughs> because our parents are more at risk or, you know, and this is also on the humorous side that, you know, we, we haven't had any, uh, you know, people behaving badly in the office cause they've not been in the office, but we did have our first sexual harassment charge by an employee against their teenage child in the house who was misbehaving because it's work environment, hostile work environment being created by a teenager at home. But, and we, we, we have to use humor here a little bit there, you know, to sort of get us through the, the stress and anxiety of so many unknowns. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, HR can bring some of that levity. You know, one of the, uh, I'll give you an example of what one company did, which I thought was really, really cool. There's a company called Mobile Iron. And the head of HR, there's a guy that used to work for me, uh, Jared Lucas. He lives in Idaho, but the company is based in Silicon Valley. So that's probably like a two-hour flight. So you can't drive that in a day. It's like a day and a half drive. So it's a good distance. They were experimenting, you know, asking the employees, like, what do you want to do um, for, for social, you know, connect, connectivity? And someone suggested a chess tournament. So they implemented this chess tournament. And, and, and Jared, my, my colleague there who's running HR, he didn't say much of it. All of a sudden, he started watching what was happening in the chess tournament. Massive engagement, like 70% of the companies involved. The chat box during the chess matches of people who've never met before saying, oh, you work in product? Oh, I work in engineering. What are you working on? Iterating on ideas, uh, you know, product solutions while in the chat playing a game. All of a sudden, it hit him and said, you know what? Maybe this gaming within the enterprise is the virtual foosball table. Maybe there's ways of us in HR facilitating these, what I call informal collisions, which are moments of innovation in an organization. We need to be thinking about that right now because people need to let off steam. You know, the first thing companies do, oh my God, are we gonna make a profit? Okay, okay, we got that solved. Okay, how can we keep our people from getting too stressed and anxious? You know, okay, let's focus on ideas like that. I thought that was a really interesting approach 
that I hope more companies are experimenting with because I think they're most worried about surviving and saving the business. If they check that box, okay, we're going to survive. Now let's check the, the psyche of our workforce and make sure that we're feeding them and helping them and watching them and, and you know, providing resources. And it's not just around is your cubicle, you know, configured, right? It's like, do you have everything you need at home? You know, can we help supply you with a printer or a better monitor or something to ease the burden and, um, and allow you to work from home more effectively with less stress, you know? And we haven't had to do that before. Let's be honest, the, the global economy right now is a, on a knife edge and everyone has a bit of a fear of failure. What fear of failure stifles is innovation. So I guess given your experience working with companies of, of various sizes, what advice would you give to individuals and companies about getting around that kind of fear of failure? Because I think avoiding fear of failure is where a lot of people will fail. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you, Darren. That's, that's always something. I mean, all the time we should be looking at. There's all kinds of research and studies from some major universities around the world around uh, in a workplace uh, where people feel safe is where they can do their best work. And what's happened because of COVID, and I, I know I'm stating the obvious for our listeners, is it's not just, we used to just have to focus on how the company is treating the employee. Now we have to focus on how the world is treating our employees. <laughs> and so there, there, there's a lot more. But listen, there's, there's a, a fabulous uh, researcher, author, journalist, uh, who, who I believe is based in London named Tim Harford. And Tim uh, gave uh, a fabulous TED Talk on um, you know, the appreciation for innovation during what he calls a little mess. And I highly recommend it to your listeners. It's Tim Harford, H-A-R-F-O-R-D. Uh, fabulously interesting TED Talk around, you know, if, if we step back and say, what's the last economic recession we faced as a, you know, a global economy? Well, that was 2008, the banking crisis, right? The parliament took over the Royal Bank of Scotland, for example, to, to bail it out. I think it still owns the bank. So what, what happened there was, during that year, 2007, 8, and 9, 30 of the current unicorns that exist today were born. So what, what Tim's saying is, and he's not talking about just those unicorns. He's, he gives another bunch of really interesting examples. But in times of stress, in times of difficulty, as human beings, we tend to slow down and focus more. And these actually happen to be big opportunities for innovation. And... They're not ones that feel good, but if we go back to 2007, 8, 9, companies like Dropbox, Uber, Slack, Airbnb were all founded during that time and, ma and many others. And it, it goes against what you would think would be the environment, which is everyone hunker down and play defense. Actually, what happens is when faced with you know, real challenging circumstances, we we find innovations and what he talks about in the in the ted talk is this um, music producer brian Eno, has worked with bands like u2 and uh, a bunch of other bands around the world and what he does when they have creative blockage is he creates a mess and he says okay you lead guitarist you play drums you drummer you go and do keyboards and he plays these games to get them to have to experience something different something difficult and they they don't like it you can't argue with Brian Eno's albums, like one after another, just amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, and he just gives a bunch of different stories about how these kinds of circumstances 
I think, offer us opportunities to be really innovative because we are all having to look at things through a different lens. And it just so happens that can create really great things. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful, you know, that that kind of advice is one that we could all adhere to and that we will see some amazing new things come out of this. You know, not that they're not that it's going to feel good, but I do think, you know, a decade from now, we're going to look back and go, whoa, look what, look what we were capable of, capable of when we really thought we were just trying to survive, you know? Final question uh, before we, we end the pod. Something that I ask all the guests when they, they come on. What do you think or what would you predict the market will look like in a, in a couple of years, years' time? I, I guess mainly from people and human resource perspective. Okay. I, I think we are going to see an explosion caused by the inability to see the future. We're going to see an explosion of contractor, temp, gig work, like unlike anything we've seen before. If I'm a big company and I'm not sure about the future, the last thing I want to do is carry a bigger financial burden of you know more employees. And the cost of paying people is every company's biggest expense by a long shot. And so I think we're going to see more and more companies have a bigger pool of their quote unquote, you know, people creating value in a company, not employees as we've known them, but more contingent workers where we have a shorter contract and a shorter relationship potentially. Okay. That's the first thing that I, I think is going to happen. I think, I think the nature of the workforce to be more, I don't know if, if Upwork has much of a presence over there, but much more project based we're going to see more and more platforms, and I think we're going to see more and more people realizing that if I can work from home, just like students at university, if I don't have to go to the university, why am I paying that big tuition for that school when this other one over here is a better online experience and it suits my lifestyle better? I think people are going to start to rethink and maybe open up to I can possibly make a living in a different way than I did before because I'm having to experiment working from home. So. I, you know, exciting times and, and, and for, for the workforce, more opportunities, right, to be created. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because as you said that, my eyes kind of turned. So I was like, that's really interesting that you, you say that you think you'll move more towards a contingent uh, workforce. I don't know if you're aware, but we had a ruling in the, in the UK and it got pushed back a year simply because of COVID in my opinion. But there's a, there's a ruling called IR35, which means that it's going to become much okay. harder for businesses to employ contract staff. So the UK seems to have gone a completely against yeah. what, you're, what you're saying. But I, I, I tend to agree with, what, with your point that I think companies need to start looking at things more on a project by project basis or a, a rolling six month basis rather than going all in and saying, this is what we're doing for the next five years. Because in reality, the companies that think about the next five years, it's great to have an outlook and a, a North Star but in reality, yeah. five years is so far away, in, in, especially from a tech perspective, that you can't predict what you're going to do in five years' time. So I, I agree with that point wholeheartedly. I think it's just interesting that the, the UK has gone against that. So I guess we got to the end of the, the podcast. Firstly, thank you so much for appearing. It's been really, really interesting. I think a lot of people that listen to the pod are going to be quite interested in reaching out. Uh, so what's the best way to, to reach out to yourself after they've listened? Hi, Darren. Thank you again so much. I just, I love your questions. I appreciate the opportunity to come in. I could talk about this for hours and hours. I hope that when my book does come out, I get a chance to come back on. If anyone wants to connect with me, engage with me, 
you know, please reach out either on LinkedIn or visit my website, which is stevecadigan.com, S-T-E-V-E, and then Cadigan, C-A-D-I-G-A-N.com. I got lots of information there. And yeah, I'd really, I'd love feedback from people around the future of work and what you're seeing and what you're thinking, because it's a new frontier and we really need to build a better model uh, together, you know, to make it work. If people want to reach out to uh, me afterwards, uh, if you reach out to hello at hackerjob.co, thanks again for your time, Steve.